Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another recording of Not Artificially Sweetened, the podcast brought to you by the CDE Academy. Believe it or not, this is our 43rd episode, and we are a year old today. Happy birthday to us, and many thanks to all of you who have joined us over the past year, as well as to newcomers who are joining us for the first time. We'd be grateful if you could give us a like and share widely on your social media network and help us enhance diabetes learning and teaching. Thanks, Stan, for that introduction. Yes, one year. Can you believe it? Just to share our top four platforms, we had a look at that the other day on our analytics. And top is Spotify, accounting for 53% of our listenership. In second place is a new one, Pocket Casts, 23% of our listenership. In third place, Apple Podcasts, 12.9. And in fourth place, Podbean at 4.3%. We are on a number of platforms, but we're going to promote those that host the most number of listeners. So giving you more options to choose from as you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm very pleased for those listeners who shared their thoughts and comments and have asked questions on our email podcast at cdediabetes.coza. Michael, for the new year, having started, I want to reiterate our organization's firm allyship with the SA Diabetes Advocacy Group. And I think for a change this time, let's get started with a message that they have. It certainly follows a theme that our listeners will no doubt have recognized from previous podcasts, and we've spoken about transition of care, how the care of a person with type 1 or type 2 diabetes changes over the lifetime, whether it be a diagnosis during an unhealthy episode such as a hospitalization or a critical illness, perhaps during a pregnancy, or as one enters older age. And I think their message touches on something that perhaps isn't so well done in South Africa, whether it's in the state or in private, and it's very refreshing to hear what SA Diabetes Advocacy have in store. SA Diabetes Advocacy's next focus project for 2024 is the Transitional Care Support Project. We have been asked to assist with the new Transitional Care Diabetes Clinic ages 12 to 20 at Helen Joseph Hospital in Joburg. The young adults are from disadvantaged backgrounds, so there are many challenges when it comes to drugs, alcohol and gang-related activities, on top of their diabetes management. We'll be working with our advocates to start an Instagram account to address difficult topics that many young adults do not want to discuss with their healthcare team. We would also like to start a WhatsApp group with the potential of in-person meetups for the young adults to connect and learn from one another, as well as leading diabetes advocates in South Africa. This project is currently in early stages of development. For more information on projects that SA Diabetes Advocacy is working on, please visit diabetesadvocacy.org.za. Great. Thank you very much, Kirsten, from SA Diabetes Advocacy. A very well-timed and pertinent message for both healthcare professionals and people with diabetes. We've had some feedback that our listeners would like a little bit more on education. And so in that vein, I'm just going to chat a little bit about the classification of diabetes. We have talked about it in previous podcasts, but just to revisit it again, because we will have new listeners and you may have forgotten. But essentially, to remember that the classification of diabetes no longer rests on what kind of therapy you are taking. 
That was a very outdated way of classifying diabetes. We used to talk about insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus and non-insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus nearly 30 years ago now. That changed to type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And it was based on what is actually going on at the physiology level. We call it pathophysiology. So for people with type 1 diabetes, there is an autoimmune destruction of the insulin-producing beta cells of the pancreas. And in type 2 diabetes, two core defects, one of progressive decline in production of the blood glucose-regulating hormone called insulin, on top of a background of being resistant to the action of insulin. Of course, diabetes is defined by a rise in blood glucose. So both types of diabetes will result in that tendency for blood glucose to rise. And that leads to potential complications. And of course, that demands us to manage this condition. We also don't talk about diabetes in terms of its age of onset anymore. We used to talk about juvenile onset and adult onset diabetes. All that is out the window because we recognize that type 1 diabetes can essentially be diagnosed at any age after the age of six months and type 2 diabetes at any age, essentially after the age of three to four years, given current national and world records for that. So age is no longer a factor and we must recognize that many types of diabetes can present at any age. A third classification is that of gestational diabetes, which is high blood glucose that is diagnosed for the first time during a pregnancy. It usually, but not always, resolves after that pregnancy, but it means that we must manage that diabetes very, very carefully during pregnancy so that we don't end up with any complications to mom or baby. There's a fourth type, and that's classified as other, and I'm going to leave that to Stan to chat about, and with that in mind, to introduce our studio guest for this week. So I'm old enough to remember the term senile diabetes. Yes. And when I studied in the early 1990s, that meant anybody over the age of 65. <laughs> and one thinks about language matters in the setting of diabetes. How inappropriate to have gone around and said, you know, Mr. Brown, you've got senile diabetes, and you're only 65 Michael, you've struck the nail on the head that it doesn't matter which of the kinds of diabetes I'm going to talk about in just a moment. They also all share the same phenomenon. The outcome is an elevation in blood sugar, and if that is poorly managed, will result in harms. Now, these rarer forms of diabetes or classified under the other forms of diabetes can occur as a result of a number of medications that people are exposed to or medical conditions that can manifest. And in more recent times, it's now been recognized that the COVID-19 virus itself may be a provocatory cause of diabetes in vulnerable individuals. Mm -hmm. And the thinking there was perhaps that an individual who was perhaps more at risk of the development of future diabetes, having acquired the illness COVID, would then have seen their diabetes possibly come out in the wash a lot earlier. And there are a number of really plausible reasons why COVID may have given rise to the numbers of diabetes that we've seen. Our listeners may be aware of a condition they have themselves or have heard of where high doses of cortisone treatment over lengthy periods of time can result in the development of diabetes. People who were perhaps poorly managed in terms of their asthma treatment before modern era inhaler therapy came along were given copious amounts of cortisone and perhaps the same accounted for many of the joint and rheumatological conditions, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. There are other causes of diabetes that can affect the pancreas directly, and you can have an episode of an inflammation of the pancreas called pancreatitis, which in many cases, in fact, quite a lethal condition. But if you survive your pancreatitis and it were to become chronic and grumble along, then that pancreas produces much less insulin over time and you can develop diabetes. 
And there's also a condition where the body lays down too much iron in the pancreas, and we call that hemochromatosis. There are a handful of genetic conditions that usually manifest in early childhood and adolescence. They're often quite mild in terms of their diabetes. We speak about monogenic diabetes or MODI. I think one of the under-recognized forms of diabetes, which is where we're going to spend much of our podcast this session, Michael, is a different form of pancreas-type diabetes as a result of cystic fibrosis. And we've invited into the studio this week, Andres Els, who's well known to ourselves, and he's going to help unpack this form of pancreas diabetes as a result of cystic fibrosis. Andres is a heavy vehicle warehouse manager here in Johannesburg. He is an expert in security specialist training with personnel, canines, and firearms. A real expert in his field. And Andres, it's a pleasure to have you join us on this podcast today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I know that when we meet our studio guests and we see each other live on the video chat that we use to facilitate our discussion, we always throw them in the deep end and ask the same question. And we say to them, well, what's your tale? Tell us about your diabetes and how that came to the fore. Sure. So 2008, still at high school, started having episodes of blood glucose, obviously being elevated in combination with other complications at that time with my cystic fibrosis, which obviously got us concerned, started looking into it. And that's where I got to know the CD through Professor Bonici, who was the very first person to treat me. I must say it was quite an entertaining meeting with him. He was very relaxed, told me this is what's happening here and this is what our plan is and that's our way forward. So for long, I was just treating myself with a diet and Obviously, over time, with my cystic fibrosis and several hospitalizations, because with cystic fibrosis, you do end up having more hospitalizations for your IV medication, respiratory infections, you're more susceptible to other added complications. I started injecting with the old pens, with either the cartridge or just disposable pens. It was a difficult process. Fingers went raw from the testing, because now you saw in the beginning, um, how to be honest, I wasn't very keen on it, but <laughs> as with everything else, you should just tell myself, it's always someone else that's worse off than you are. It's mind over matter. You can handle what gets thrown in your way. I had a great support structure. My family has always been behind me. My sister's actually my assistant fibrosis specialist, which lots of people will say, okay, but, you know, is it really good? It's good because she's tough on me. <laughs> so, you know, obviously she ensures that not just myself, but all the patients are on the right track, getting the best treatment. And yeah, eventually I spoke to Vanessa and she started looking at everything and I actually qualified for the pump. It was back then they still balanced it out on certain things. And it was about 2011 that I started using the insulin pump. I was still down in George. When I started it, lies in between George and obviously Johannesburg, main hub of the city. And yeah, they got me on the old pumps that gave you a bolus and gave you the slower treatment over time. A continuous dose throughout the day and night. And with time, as technology grew, pumps got better, technology got better. Then you get new systems for each part of the insulin treatment. And here I am today. I almost want to say living a normal life. Besides for having a pump in my pocket, it's not much different to me and the guy on the street. I often get asked, is that your walkie-talkie? Is that your pager? Is that your radio for security? Is that the dog's remote control vibrating collar? And I'll just laugh. I said, well, it's connected to me, so I'm going to get the shock if I press any buttons. <laughs> so people get asked, even my little nephew, that's still small. 
I think he was three, four years old, explaining to him, listen, this is what it is. It's for my sugar and try and simplify it as much as possible for a kid like that. He looked at it, he goes, oh, okay, it's your medicine. Said, yes, it's my medicine. I mean, he's grown up with me, seeing me get my IV medication, taking my hand full of tablets in the morning. So to him, that's normal, but why do I have this nice gadget in my pocket and he can't play with it? And he just said to me one day, someone asked me, what's that? He went, oh, that was your phone, isn't it? I said, no, it's the insulin pump. Oh, yes, I forgot. So even the people around you sometimes will say, oh, what's that? And including my parents. And my wife, she's the one that will say, do you have your bum? And I have to feel that so I've got my phone. Oh, yes, there's a bum. It becomes part of life. There's nothing that puts you out there saying, listen, I'm someone that's got an internet bump in my pocket or on my belt. People don't see it. Everybody thinks, oh, now I've got to get this. People are going to notice it, look funny at me. To be honest, life is such a rush lately. People don't notice things like that on you because everybody's got some form of technology on them, whether it's an earpiece in your ear or smartwatch, and this is the same. It's just another piece of technology you carry with you and part of life doesn't put you back, doesn't put you down. It makes life easier than having you carry around your pens and put it in a cooler bag the whole time or keep it in a fridge. Now all I've got to worry about is my spare insulin, Keeping it cold if I travel. These days you get all sorts of things that can keep it cool and cold. As for my cystic fibrosis, I'm on a new medical treatment that's available. Maybe let's just stop you there, Andres, before you describe your new medical treatment. For our listeners' sake, let's just talk a little bit about cystic fibrosis and what it was like in the past. I can remember 35 years ago when I was training and I was working at Ward 496 in the then Johannesburg General Hospital. And that was a ward where we admitted many people who had complications of cystic fibrosis. Back in those days, the life expectancy, you were really old if you lived to 30 years old. And those poor people were really, really sick. And looking at you, you look like an operator with your operator beard and your cap. You look ready for action. You look strong. You look fit. And you don't look like the typical profile of someone with cystic fibrosis. So Stan, maybe just a couple of words about what cystic fibrosis does at a physiological level, just for our listeners, so that we understand the seriousness of what Andres has had to endure over the years. He's talked a lot about his diabetes, but let's hear a little bit about the cystic fibrosis. It's found in about one in 2,000 people worldwide. So it's rare, but not that rare. And in fact, it's not that rare in the South African Afrikaner population. Mm. And we know this because Dr. Carla Else was interviewed by us for our journal club this past week. She herself is a pediatric lung specialist as well as an allergy specialist and really gave some great teachings to our organization at the medical doctor level. And what we came away with from that is that akin to diabetes, it too is a chronic medical condition. Mm -hmm. It has a genetic propensity and it will almost always show up in childhood and in early adolescence. And depending on the way your cystic fibrosis or CF, if it's often abbreviated as, will show up with chronic lung infections will show up with the child who's just failing to thrive and is not growing. Mm. The child who is perhaps eating like a horse and is still losing weight may have gut-related symptoms, as we know that cystic fibrosis results in the body's inability to get rid of secretions. And those organs that get rid of things or secrete things, such as the lung and such as the pancreas, are where the condition shows up. 
and it can lead to severe recurrent pneumonias. And that's often when the penny drops and the diagnosis is then undertaken, usually with a test called a sweat test, as well as with more modern day DNA analysis of the particular genetic abnormality. And we know in the South African Afrikaner population, there is quite a common DNA abnormality. Now, Michael, as you correctly pointed out, the life expectancy for cystic fibrosis has come leaps and bounds over the years because it has become more aggressively treated. This nihilistic approach of the end is near has totally disappeared. People are coming in now and having regular antibiotic treatments, which they require on an ongoing basis, mm. very careful attention to their nutrition. And we'll hear from Andres about kind of medication he has to take over and above insulin-based treatment. And in the setting of diabetes, I think cystic fibrosis has quite a lot in common. You need a good, caring team of competent individuals who are able to manage many of the attributes that go hand in hand with this condition. And again, in the setting of diabetes, the person with the condition needs to be first and foremost. Absolutely. So Andres, now tell us about this medication that has changed lives for some people with cystic fibrosis. The sum is very intentional. Yeah, so obviously for certain reasons, we can't disclose the names and pharmaceuticals, unfortunately. Right. Yes, it comes at, unfortunately, quite a high price, but taking them gives me closest to normal as possible medically at the moment. My sweat test basically comes back as call it normal Wonderful. after taking them. And also if you look at I used to be hospitalized every three months, six months, then it was a, a good year. Now hitting April 2024, it'll be two years since last I went in for cystic fibrosis related hospitalization. Wow. I've been in for my trigger thumb, which you can get it. So yeah, it's a miracle drug. It's life changing. It's changed our lives. I'm turning 37 this year. I was told 13 is going to be old for you. Oh well, here I am 24 years later. Wow. And uh, I Yes, I've proven them wrong. Um, mm. Yeah, since I've taken these medication, um, I've actually got to watch out. I'm busy getting a bit of a gut developed. And where I always used to be slim and lean and everybody's like, oh, but you don't get fat. And why don't you get fat? It's like, well, I've got something on my side that most people don't have. You know, and that's my medical condition, cystic fibrosis, which causes you to lose weight and gain a lot more difficult. But since I've been on the medication, I've actually had to not go on a diet, but I had to watch what I eat. Mm -hmm. With cystic fibrosis, it would be high carbs for the energy, high fat intake for development, obviously, to keep your body fed and give you the energy. Let's stop you there, because I think that's a very important point, Andres. I know that you have battled in your past with healthcare practitioners who didn't understand that intersection between cystic fibrosis treatment and the management of diabetes. Yes, yes. In diabetes, we tend to ask our clients to have a low-carb, low-fat food intake in the context of cystic fibrosis treatment because you're not absorbing those nutrients as you should. It changes now the recommendations that you should be actually eating high-carb, high-fat meals in conjunction with pancreatic enzyme replacements to help you absorb the foodstuffs. And I think that's really an important point for health professionals listening to this podcast. Remember, we exist to change lives and to change practice. And so health professionals, please listen to this very carefully. Yes. Carry on, Andre. Sorry for that interruption, but I think it was important. 
So yeah, I'd eat two, three tablespoons peanut butter with banana and full cream milk. And if I added extra cream, it would have been, there you go. That's a nice high kilojoule, high carb diet. You know, it would be good, healthy for me. Absolutely. If I take my enzymes with it, that obviously assists with absorption. That would be top-notch. You're doing a good supplement to obviously a meal. You couldn't count that as a meal. But looking at my diabetes side of things, obviously, it wouldn't be as acceptable in a way, for lack of a better word from my side, to go into such fatty foods. You know, if something was deep fried, it was, yes, your cholesterol, but I had less of an issue of having to worry about cholesterol. The rest sorted it out, you know, because absorption and the processing of fatty and carbs of my intake would obviously affect it. But in the end, you get to the hospital when I go in for my treatments every three to six months and the hospital staff, they train in their field and they know what they're doing. But to be honest, how many cases of diabetes plus cystic fibrosis do they see on a daily basis? And it's not a doctor they closely work with that does have patients with CF and diabetes. So I had to explain, listen, I'm diabetic, I'm on an insulin pump, but I require a normal diet. And the kitchens would get confused. Yes, but you're a patient. And then you see the kitchen manager and he's like, but if I give you a normal diet, the doctor's going to come down on me because you've got a diabetic diet that you're supposed to follow. So it's hard work from my side because I've got to explain and you've got to explain it not once, but 10, 20 times because obviously every time you don't necessarily get the same hospital staff that is part of your treatment. Right. And also the doctors, they've got to speak to the ward or the hospital staff and say, listen, yes, we understand that, but because of one, two, and three, this is why it's different. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you'll see some people go, okay, I understand, makes sense. Other people will say, okay, I understand, but you can still see sort of concern, confusion on their faces. Like, am I going to do the right thing to give this guy what he's asking for if I know for a fact that you've got a different diet? <laughs> so let's just clarify for people why you're in this situation. So what cystic fibrosis does in terms of the pancreas, it affects both endocrine, which means the hormone function of the pancreas, the production of hormones like insulin and glucagon, as well as the exocrine function. Now, exocrine function refers to the production of the digestive enzymes. We call these amylases to digest starches, lipases to digest fats, and proteases to digest proteins. Now, obviously, if you now have almost total lack of the pancreas to both produce insulin and to produce the digestive enzymes needed to absorb the nutrients from the digestion of the foodstuffs that you eat, you've now got a double problem. And that's why you need the high carbohydrate, high fat nutrient intake, plus digestive enzymes, plus insulin replacement therapy. So I hope that clarifies it for our listeners. And the whole other list of medication that goes with CF. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, which is quite long. The guys tell me, what medication are you on? I say, can I just say they're CF related because your space on your forms or on your papers, four lines, I need another A4 page to fill up what I take on a daily or on a weekly basis. So I always joke about it. I always see the other the light side in the situation. So I do upset some people because I'll crack a joke and I can't do that. So Yes, I can. I'm talking about myself, so why not? <laughs> so yeah, so I started taking the new medication and all of a sudden I'm on low-fat milk, 
watching my diet better. <laughs> so now I'm more on the diabetes diet, looking after my weight better. I mean, I gained weight, I think within two days, I gained like four kilos. And it was a shock to me because all of a sudden I got to watch my pants that are tightening and my shirts are getting too small. And yeah, it was an adaptation. All of a sudden, you don't cough most of the day. I used to have everything just like a little <laughs> quite often. And without thinking of it, at the end of the day, you know, something's not right. Because I didn't cough. I didn't have to clear my throat. It's amazing. Wow. I think in a way, looking at my diabetes side of things with the insulin, I think it's easier to manage for me now because I've got less other complications that affect me and cause me to feel sick and feel down and then you eat less or you don't feel like eating and things like that. So I can focus more on the diabetes side of it and easier than on the other side. Yes, I've still got to do my physios, still got to do my nibs, still got to take my medication that's obviously prescribed for the cystic fibrosis. That's not thrown in the dustbin and I can forget about it. I just take this one miracle medication. Unfortunately, it's not like that yet. We believe they're going to get there one day, but I've been doing that for 37 years. So I wake up, first thing I do, handful of tablets, down the throat, then it's coffee and breakfast time. But that is less to stress about because you don't spend half an hour on physio because you've got lots of phlegm, you've got lots of secretions to get rid of. Time's cut shorter because I've got nothing. Um, if I have to do certain tests, I struggle to produce samples so I've got less secretions to get rid of, so it makes everything else being managed just that little bit easier to go forward and start my day. Nice to hear that positivity coming out. There are two issues I want to raise here for you both. Number one, what I'm hearing is that the disease cystic fibrosis's trajectory from a lethal disease to a survivorship has now become apparent. And whilst the parallels between diabetes and cystic fibrosis seem quite common, we're not quite there in terms of actually treating the fundamental disease of diabetes, which lies at the level of the pancreas. There are some antibodies that can be used in early type 1 diabetes. And Michael, we've brought that up on this show in the past year. It would be great if in a few years' time we were sitting here saying that people with diabetes are becoming insulin independent mm. and we've been able to push the disease profile out. That's the first thing I'm hearing here. And it's great to know that perhaps a rarer condition like cystic fibrosis is seeing great strides made in that way. The second point I want to bring up here is I'm hearing a lot more around the advocacy component here because these drugs that Andrew speaks of, they're not gotten at your corner pharmacy. These drugs come a long way. And if I understand correctly, all the way from Argentina through Ecuador back into South Africa, because of the way in which the patenting is being run at this point, there's a lot of litigation around these drugs and quite rightly so access to life-saving drugs. Mm -hmm. That sounds similar to what's going on in South Africa with diabetes advocacy. So Andres, is there a lot of uproar and ready for the fight in terms of getting access to these life-changing drugs for CF patients? Are you involved in that at all? There is currently a court case, but obviously that goes into the costs of millions, as expected. There was news this week, I think it's at the High Court or Supreme Court, the case, which doesn't mean it's almost over, it no. basically starts again. But yes, there is a, I won't call it a fight, because obviously we're not going to fight for something we really need or want. It's a discussion to get to an agreement where patient and manufacturer can both benefit. So the whole idea is to get to a mutual agreement of if we do X, Y, and Z, then you can give us 
A, B, and C. So yes, there is a court case pending on it. They're busy with it. The lady is actually doing a great job taking on this big task, this big role, and every single chief patient is 110% behind her. Well, I know from our side we are. We definitely are. And we support how we can or where we can. If it's signing a petition or talking in a sort of a video to send to her, we do our best where we can to contribute how we can. There is some progress, whether it's good, bad, in favour or not in favour. There is discussions happening and obviously there's a discussion that means there's progress. So yeah, we're positive about it and obviously we're holding thumbs and hoping and praying for the best. Yeah, it's a huge ethical dilemma. One always recognizes that pharmaceutical companies need to be able to recoup the costs of research and the development of any medication molecule. And we know that process takes up to 10 years. So we know that. And there are significant costs in doing that. However, I think this is an advocacy issue where we do need to call on these companies that they exercise stewardship over the benefits that can accrue from the sale of medications and that specifically for medications like this that honestly change lives. I'm amazed looking at you, Andres, compared to the people I was looking after in the past. You look like any other person I would come across. I would not ever have thought, wow, there goes a person with cystic fibrosis. This is where life-changing and life-saving medications like this, we really need to advocate for greater access to very vulnerable people. Well, I've had arguments with people before. No, it's impossible. You can't be. I can believe them looking at you. <laughs> and that's a good thing. I've had arguments with people where they say, no, you're lying. You're not see mm, if yeah. you're not someone with diabetes. You know, you kind of got to look at the score, look at the incident pump. There's the proof. You know, they're like, ah, surely. <laughs> and it actually happened at the CDE. I had a gentleman there the one day. He looked and he's like, I won't say his exact words because it was a bit mm. censored. But he says, why are you here? What are you doing here? I'm, like, I'm coming to see the doctor and uh, get my medication <laughs> and, you know, my my appointment. He looks at me just near <laughs> and then obviously the censored part and it's like, impossible. Surely you can't be. I'm like, here's my pump. It's a proof. And he just laughed. He said, yes, you look good. You do. And he just mm-hmm. like slapped his belly. Look at me. <laughs> with me, I won't argue, but with you, it's different. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. I think that speaks to how are people making judgments on how you look. Mm. We hear that the stigma around diabetes, whether you have a pump and people use the word, you must be pretty sick. Your doctor isn't telling you the truth. You're going to die. My uncle was on a pump. You know, oh, you have diabetes. You're going to lose your legs like my grandmother. And I think for our listenership out there, you've probably encountered, if you're a person with diabetes, a degree, perhaps more than a degree of stigma directed at your body size predominantly. And and we're working hard to use the right language and to ensure that this is a much more inclusive management process. And yep, Andres, we hear that every day from people with diabetes who've encountered such Michael, it's been a jam-packed session focusing on a condition that many listeners wouldn't have necessarily come across perhaps distantly within their social society, their family and friends, they have heard of cystic fibrosis, but perhaps less aware that it's associated with its own form of diabetes. And whilst it may behave in a similar manner as type 1 diabetes, in other words, it develops in a young person and they always need insulin treatment, it's not exactly the same in terms of it doesn't have that autoimmune component. And exactly as Andres has experienced here, it develops after the cystic fibrosis has manifested. There were some people who have a long lag period before they develop their diabetes. And even if their diabetes were to develop exactly as he's told us today, 
it was mild enough to use a phrase that he didn't need insulin right from the get-go, but his pancreas juices the exocrine component, as you called it, Michael, that always fails first. And in many people, then it is the insulin-producing side that often fails. So for me, a take-home message for today is that diabetes is more than just one thing. Mm -hmm. Sure, all of them have in common an elevation in blood glucose, and if left fully managed, long-term complications and harms can occur, but that doesn't have to be the case. Andres has changed two trajectories in his life. He's had the trajectory of his cystic fibrosis change because he has excellent care from a really competent lung specialist, in this case his sister, using appropriate medications. And secondly, his trajectory has changed for the better because he's managing his diabetes optimally. And it's inspirational hearing you here today, Andres. You know, you're thriving on many fronts. I would say you're our local Chuck Norris for those who haven't seen us. You've got that build, that can-do attitude, that positive attitude. You know, you said you get up in the day and you just get going. And that's inspirational for me and keeps me confident that we're doing a good job and your health may that prevail long into the future. Enough for me. I'm going to bow out to leave Michael to say the final goodbyes. And listeners, we'll catch you with episode 44 in the week ahead. Thanks, Dan. Andres, we are so grateful that you have shared your valuable time with us and that you brought insight into what it's like living with cystic fibrosis and cystic fibrosis-related diabetes. We often view diabetes as the prototype of all chronic health conditions, mostly because it's a very common condition and because the self-management is so complex. But I think uh, probably have to award almost first prize to cystic fibrosis and to have both conditions. My take home is your amazing enthusiasm and can-do attitude despite the self-management burden of both conditions. I think you're an amazing role model for many people with chronic health challenges. So thank you, Andres, for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for giving of your time as well to join us again this week. We look forward to being with you again next week with another amazing show. So until then, over and out from us. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes... The health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time.